Hey team, LDR here welcoming you back Beyond the Walls with Team World Vision. This week we want to begin with an impact celebration and a mission update. Since June 15th, this team has raised over $100,000. That's right, $100,000 for clean water, sanitation, and hygiene around the world. That's 20,000 people who now have access to clean water because of you. A chance to wash their hands and protect themselves from the spread of disease. Hospitals now have clean water and hand washing stations. Your faithfulness and boldness is changing the lives of people around the world as you move your feet today. But team, I also have to let you know that I received an email this past week that broke my heart and it more strongly rooted me in my why, why I run and why I will continue to run with you. And I've got to give you this update about what's happening in countries in East Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, South Sudan, Somalia. Our brothers and sisters are facing a triple threat of health, hunger, and livelihoods right now, brought on by mass plagues of locust, widespread flooding, not to mention the compounding impacts of COVID-19. Team, crops are being decimated, the floods are causing mass displacement, and COVID cases are rising, all in the context of no access to clean water. Friends, I know that we are tired, and I know that we're weary of living through a global pandemic and homeschooling our kids and seeing people that we know and love fight COVID. It has been a season. But this year, team, this year is going to be in our children and our grandchildren's history books. And we can tell them from our rocking chairs that in the midst of the unknown, while locusts and floods and a brand new virus was wreaking havoc around the world, that we stood in the gap and helped stop the devastation. This is our story unfolding, team. Thank you for saying yes to water, yes to children having the ability to wash their hands, and yes to inviting people we know into this mission and vision to change the world. In the midst of fear, you are bringing hope. So this week, as we finish up our series about getting beyond the walls of racism in America, we get to celebrate Danny and Michael Chitwood's 20th wedding anniversary. Michael is the founder of Team World Vision and executive director of Church and Ministry Partnerships at World Vision. Danny is working on her PhD in organizational leadership and has crushed six full marathons and 40 half marathons, y'all. Michael and Danny are proud parents of the one and only and quite possibly youngest soon-to-be ninja warrior, Cruz Chitwood. Many of you know that June 12th was the anniversary of Loving Day, a day to celebrate the legalization of interracial marriages in the U.S. So we thought, what a better way to close out this series than to sit down with Danny and Michael and hear a bit about their love story and life story, what drew them together and what keeps them going. Twenty years of marriage—that's no joke. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How? So, twenty years of marriage. How long have you guys known each other? 
Yeah, we, we we knew of each other when you were at all of it, but yeah. like it was in oh he plays football, like nothing. Yeah, we went to college together and I always had a girlfriend through college and so I wasn't in the dating market, but yeah. um and I was two years older than Danny, but I knew who she was and so but we didn't actually meet then until that fall, my first year out of college and then her junior year of college. I was teaching elementary school. All of ninety seven. Yeah. I was teaching fifth grade and living with three other guys from college. I went out on a Friday night to the mall by myself. They all my three roommates all had dates and I didn't, so I wandered around the mall in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Bumped into some of my Buddies who I played football with when I was in college, but I was also in a Bible study with them at the time, some guys, and they, this guy, Ben Simpkins, said, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. we got a bunch of people getting together tonight. So we went out to Ruby Tuesdays, and Danny was there. I was there. Um, I had taken a semester off from all of it, but I still had some uh, good friends that were, that were still on campus. One of my good friends, Shonda, may she rest in peace. Um, I went down to spend the weekend with her, and she said, hey, we're going to go out to eat and go hang out. Let's, let's go do that. And I'm like, sure, I'm up for anything. And that's where I've officially met him. Yeah. So what actually in the beginning drew you to Danny then, Michael? Yeah, well, I mean, well, first, just, um, you know, you don't know anything other than you first, someone catches your eye. So Danny had caught my eye, like I said, my senior year of college, but I, I was um, kind of coming out of a hard relationship, a long-term relationship, and so I wasn't really looking to ask anyone out right then, but she had caught my eye then. I just thought she was really cute, but like I said, I was in a Bible study at the time uh, with about 12 other friends um, who were all black guys. I was the only white guy in the Bible study, and I didn't know at these small Christian colleges uh, it's a pretty small black community, and so people know each other really well often. And uh, I didn't know Danny at all. And so I started asking them, hey, do you guys know her? And they all just raved about her. Everyone I talked to said, what do you think about her? Oh, my goodness, she's sharp. She's such a, she's a, you know, she loves God. She's so kind. She's all these things. And so, um, yeah, right from the get-go, that was some, something about that. Um, just drew me to her right away. Yeah, I don't know. I think we just had a really good complementary personalities. We are, you know, very different. I'm as far extrovert as you can get. Danny's a fairly introverted. I'm always amazed when I look back, like I, like I was saying, I just think, wow, we barely knew each other. We dated for two and a half years. It's not like we didn't know each other, but when, you know, like a, a, next week, a week from today, so July 1st, we'll be. Uh, 20 years of being married together and so it's it's kind of hard to think back I've we've we've now been together for half my life I'm 44 so we've been together 22 and a half years so we've been together half my life so it's hard to jump back all the way there and remember what life was like pre before us but I do know that I, I recognized fairly quickly what a special woman she was and that I thought, man, this could be, this could be it. Hmm. And it is. It is.
Well, so Michael, you've had your, you had your eye, it sounds like, on Danny for years, and you were just trying to work the system and get her to see you. But Danny, what was it about Michael that finally caught your eye? Um, that finally caught my eye? Like, when I decided to, decided to <laughs> say, like, oh, okay, this dude is, is digging me. I liked his persistence. I liked his confidence. I think back, you know, being so young and thinking about things that I appreciate about him now and I see other people do, he's not trying to be too cool. I've, I've had people in my life that have played the I'm too cool role. And he always teases me about like how I was trying to be too cool, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I meet people and if you were the the over gregarious and excited person that would throw somebody off, it wasn't that he was over gregarious. He was just himself. And I look back on it and I, I appreciate that about him. And he is who he is. It, it's not a bad thing. He's laughing, but it's, <laughs> it's not a bad thing. You have people that will write you off because they get annoyed by one little thing about who you are, but he is who he is, and he accepts me for me, flaws and all. That's how we met. That's how we started dating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was the first white guy she had dated. She was the first black girl I had dated. And it was definitely... Some of our parents were down with it, and then Danny. My 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 dad was not. No, my dad. Um, my dad was pretty militant, and learning, you know, seeing what I see now, you know, at the time I didn't understand why he was so mean at first and so rude, but unlike hearing my mom tell stories and thinking about, you know, what he went through at work as a black man and the things that he had to overcome. It's, his pain was understandable. He was in the Navy, he was stationed in Hawaii, he had to deal with racism there. Um, like I said, he had to deal with racism at work. That would make anyone angry. And our parents, or our prayer I should say, mm -hmm. wasn't that, that he accepted him. It was that he come to know Christ. Right when we started dating, I had had a friend, um, one of my roommates I was living with, and he is a black guy. His, uh, his wife was Indian, his girlfriend at the time. And when they kept it a secret for three years from her parents. And when they told her parents, her parents disowned her. Um, they wound up getting married, and her parents didn't even go to their wedding. So when we started dating, I really told Danny early on, hey, if we're going to date, I think we should tell our parents. Like, I don't think we should hide it. And... I didn't really realize what I was asking her because I didn't think my parents would, I knew they wouldn't disown me. I didn't know how they'd react, but I knew they wouldn't disown me. And my mom, she, I mean, we grew up in a pretty diverse suburb, so she knew that it was a possibility. And it wasn't, you know, as long as that person was a person of faith, it yeah. wasn't something that bothered her. But my mm -hmm. dad lived on the south side of Chicago um, in a homogenous community. Wasn't um, a believer. It wasn't a believer. Mm -hmm. Um, again, hurt, hurt, hurt by a lot of people. Um, and I knew, you know, that he may have a problem with it. I told my stepmother, um, at the time, 
And she, you know, she said, you know, you need to take a little time and tell before you tell your dad. So when Danny mm-hmm. told him, he basically hung up the phone and didn't speak to her for a couple months. But during that time, we started praying, God, just, we just pray that he would accept you. And it was pretty hard how he came about that is he actually got diagnosed with cancer and mm-hmm. really started doing some soul searching. He started going to um, Reverend James Meek's church, um, House of Hope, uh, on the south side of Chicago and got saved. And not long after that, called us up and had us over for dinner. Basically mm-hmm. said, I'm sorry, God's changed my heart. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have uh, had those views against you before I even got to know you. I should have given you a chance. And so then by the time we got engaged, he was like, look, he had two daughters. So he was looking forward to having a son. and really, A son who would watch football with him. Which I don't do. Which he does not do. I, I played football. I don't watch football. But I faked it for my father-in-law, but, which was a blessing that, that he had come around. But then, uh, you know, in our first year of marriage, we lost my dad very suddenly. But then a year and a half later, um, we lost Danny's dad to cancer. And so we only got a bit of time, you know, with him after being reconciled with him. And so we cherished that time, but it was definitely felt shortchanged. You can only imagine the uphill battle within your families, but then you go outside your own homes and the uphill battle, knowing a little bit of your story. Curious, you know, you guys have, like you said, you've been through a lot in 20 years. You've been through... Lots of celebration and lots of turmoil, lots of changes. I mean, you started a whole ministry, Chitwood. Danny, you're working on a PhD. Um, You've had a child. I'm just really curious, you know, what does support look like um, for you and your marriage? How do you love one another? How do you support one another? Um, Specifically with this whole other, I guess, component to your marriage that other folks in homogenous marriages just don't have to worry about. You know, it's it's funny that you say that, and I think about him. I can never not remember him being my biggest fan. Um, one thing that we, you know, would dialogue about, um, in terms of my family, um, and something that, and I, I don't want to say range true in the black community, but um, there's definitely parallels. Black community, Black families want to prepare you for pain sometimes and prepare you for, you know, getting your feelings hurt, prepare you for rejection. And I faced a lot of that and it would manifest itself in different ways. And I talked to him a lot about that um, and how, you know, that kind of prevented me from striking out on my own and doing ABC. Um, And he recognized that I needed somebody to be in my corner, somebody to be, you know, my cheerleader. Um, When somebody would say, you know, you can't do this. um, He helped me recognize that wasn't steeped in fact. They didn't have empirical evidence on why you couldn't do something. They didn't realize that they were tearing you down, but I'm here to say that you can do it. So he's he's always been my num- no number one fan in the stands, number one cheerleader when it comes to, you know, ensuring that I'm successful. I wouldn't have gotten this far with this PhD program without him. Um, and 
you know, like I work, I work as hard as I do because I know I have somebody saying you can do it. So. Yeah, I think for me, um, let me just start with just us first. I always tell people marriage is hard. Like, so just marriage is hard. Like, so being in an interracial marriage, I don't know if it's any harder than not being in an interracial marriage because it's the only marriage I've ever been in. And so uh, marriage is just hard. I think being in an interracial marriage has made me a better human being in a lot of ways, um, you know, because we share such, we come to the table with different worldviews and different experiences. And it's definitely, up, you know, had a huge impact on my life being married to Danny and watching the challenges she faces. But jump before that, even, you know, losing my dad, our first year of marriage, I think really tragedy can push you together or apart. She set the bar for how to be there for someone when they're hurting. Just when I lost my dad, you know, it was before our, our first anniversary, even um, we've been married, what, nine months um, when I lost my dad and she had to see me completely come undone, completely, you know, almost lose my faith, lose myself. Um, and she was there for me. And that prepared me then a year and a half later when she lost her dad to at least have a glimpse of what it means to be there for each other. Um, then we actually pursued, I don't know why, but we ended, we did grad school together. Um, so we did our master's in social work together at University of Illinois and sat in almost every class next to each other, uh, did our notes together, you know, did whatever. Side note, side so, note. It would make me sick being in class with him because he didn't have to study. He didn't have to study. Like, I'm in my books, I'm reading. I would, like, struggle to get a B plus. This man is doodling in class, doodling, and he gets A's. That's, it is that's a little bit of a misnomer, though. No, it's and not. I almost flunked out of every level of school I ever did until grad school. I almost flunked out of high school, elementary school, junior high, college. Grad school was kind of my gig because all you had to do was really participate and listen. Well, it was stuff that we were interested in. The stuff right? we were interested in, yeah. So, in undergrad, you don't like if you're not if your focus isn't on yeah. um, ge geology, you don't necessarily care about you know mm -hmm. what yeah. what happens in that course. But you have to go. Yeah. Like we we genuinely cared about what we were studying. So that was awesome. We got to do. I think that's a unique experience. Very few probably married couples ever do a master's degree together. That's pretty cool. And then Danny was volunteering with me at Youth for Christ. So we were together in ministry a lot. Um, but as far as like being an interracial couple and the way that has impacted us, I wish I could say I was more aware in the early years. I thought coming into our marriage, I was doing, I mean, I grew up in an all white community you know, we had less than 10 black kids in my high school, probably less than 20 people of color in a school of seven, 800 people. But in college, I had, you know, formed some deep friendships with some black guys. I lived with, my roommates were black guys. I was in this Bible study where I was the only white guy in the Bible study. I taught in an elementary school. It was 98% African-American. So by the time we got around and started dating, I thought I was, you know, pretty aware of racism and things you know, a racial injustice. But then even as we got married in the early years, as I look back, any people of color, any, any black folks listening to this would probably, they'd probably cringe at the types of conversations we had in the early years because I was still clinging to these 
privileged ideas or whatever of, you know, well, reverse racism can happen, you know, and just really basic things that I didn't understand. And it wasn't really, I mean, I was on a journey and we talked about this stuff, but when we moved to Chicago, we'd been married five and a half years mm-hmm. and we started going to River City Community Church and where racial justice was kind of a core value. And so that was, you know, the same year we started Team World Vision um, was when we moved to Chicago. And so that journey started to accelerate then. But then I would say even six years ago, then when we had cruise, it accelerated again. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been a constant learning curve. And people ask me where, where I was on that and, you know, why I did not push back. I got married when I was 22 years old. Um, you know, I, I knew of racism. I knew racism existed. Um, but a 22-year-old, although you think you know everything, I wasn't at the point where I could articulate and push back, um, you know, until I got a little bit older, until I got, you know, involved in systems where I personally became depressed. Then I could, you know, push back and say, no, actually, it's this. No, actually, this is my experience. And you can look at the evidence here for him to understand. So that first year of marriage, or early in marriage, you said you lost your dad right away. And then, you know, your buddy, a lot of us know a little bit of the story of how Team World Vision came to be, but your running journey as a post-collegiate football player, getting a phone call from a buddy saying that he's going to run Chicago Marathon. And then as the story is told, you come out of that conversation and walk in the living room and tell Danny, you're going to run Chicago Marathon. I heard you say, and you were fortunate that your wife didn't laugh you out of the house, <laughs> but I've never heard Danny tell this story. Uh, you got a, a football player husband who doesn't run only for punishment, and he says he's going to run a marathon. When he announces this, how did you, what did you think? Um, honestly, knowing him, um, I knew that he could put anything he said his mind to. You know, we... When we lived in Champaign, we were around couples where one or the other spouse was extremely negative. They would not speak positivity into one another. And I didn't, you know, we weren't perfect in our our first year of marriage by by any long shot, but I didn't want to be that person that said that I didn't believe in him. I didn't want to be that person to say, I don't think you can do this. And, you know, and some spouses would say that, you know, I just don't want you to get your feelings hurt. No, like I knew that some, if he said he was going to do it, he, he could do it. And, and I needed to be, I needed to be that person in this corner. And in turn, I, I expected that for myself. It wasn't, I wasn't going to be somebody that, that I did in turn expect, you know, like, I expected that of him and I wanted to be that person, person for him, if that makes sense. You know, like that was, that was a no brainer for me. I knew I needed to be his number one fan. So then you fast forward, Michael crosses the finish line of a marathon. 
you took on a triathlon. Is that right, Michael, an Ironman after your marathon? That was pretty cool. So after the first marathon, I ended up getting a bunch of friends to run a half marathon that spring. And Danny in Indianapolis and Danny signed up and did a run walk for that. So she ran every other mile for that. The next year, so that was 2005, 2004 was that. Um, I ended up that fall, I did a mountain run, 20 mile mountain run with a friend, the same guy that talked me into my marathon. But it was in 2004, headed into 2005 when I heard about the Ironman triathlon. So I signed up. I decided a year out, I didn't know how to swim, I didn't have a bike, so I gave myself a full year to train for Ironman 2005. And simultaneously, Danny ended up signing up for her first full marathon. And so, New York City yeah, Marathon. New York City Marathon. So it was interesting because tons of people then would say, like, how did you get your wife to do this stuff? I said, I never asked her to do it. I never put pressure on her to do it. She saw that it had changed my life. I wound up losing 70 pounds. It was really helping my faith. And she started walking and then run walking and then running. And um, so then she took her first marathon. And so I got to turn around, like you said, and return the favor, believe in her. And I remember when she went out for her 20 miler, I think it was that year when she went out for a 20 mile, it started raining. The two friends she started out with both showed up at my house. They quit the 20 miler, one at 15 miles, one at 10 miles. I said, where's Danny? And they said, she's still out there. And it was literally torrential downpours. And I got in the car and like went to try to find her. She finally showed up at the house, drenched head to toe. She'd been out for a solid you know, amount of time, a solid <laughs> amount of time. You doing her 20 miles. The, the time duration. But I just remember going, heck yeah. She stuck it out. Right. But seeing that stick to it attitude from her and yeah. Like with grief, she showed me the support I needed when I lost my dad. So a year and a half later, I knew how to reciprocate that. And she showed me belief in me when I signed up for my first marathon. So I knew how to reciprocate that. And I'm crushed when I see you know, as we invite folks to run marathons with Team World Vision, I'm crushed by how often it is somebody close to them that is the voice of discouragement. And that just breaks my heart. I know, I've known so many of our runners. And that's never their intention. There's no. never their intention to crush, no. you know, someone. But it, that's the impact. That's, that's the impact. That's yeah. what ends up happening. And then, you know, the person that serves is their number one fan, ultimately, inflicts doubt into that person and I didn't want to be that person for him so then you fast forward and uh is it was it a run or a bike ride that you get a vision from God of it was a bike ride it was an 85 mile bike ride my longest ever I was we were in Champaign Illinois so it was out in the cornfields and it was literally a light bulb moment where you know I'd been to Haiti a couple times I'd seen global poverty I'd done I'd seen the charity running stuff going on at races and it just hit me. You need to, you need to do this. You need to do races and invite people to do races with you and raise money for the kids in the poorest places in the world living in extreme poverty. And so came home threw my bike in the garage. I don't even know that I saw you before. I went to the office, wrote a bunch of ideas, but then it began a several month dialogue about, this idea. Wasn't it like, didn't you come and collapse on the floor and ask for a popsicle and then? <laughs> That's true. Oh my gosh. <laughs> then tell me. That is so true. I, oh yes. 
I can't, so I never remember this part. So coming back, it was hot, hot. The headwinds were brutal. So I was bicycling at like five miles an hour where your bicycle almost tips over. Completely dehydrated. I came in, it was like 95 degrees out. I laid on our kitchen floor and I just said, Danny, can you get me a popsicle, please? And I laid on the floor and ate a popsicle. And within 20, 30 minutes, I snapped to, you're right. And I told you the vision. But the vision started that day. It did not seem like something that was going to happen within months. It real, we were both in grad school pursuing our master's degree in social work together, heading towards the end, but we still had some school up. It seemed like it would be a few years off. It didn't seem like, oh, there's something we're going to do now. It's like, oh, I got a vision for the future. And so it, it took a, a few months of conversations. So basically, I had taken that idea and I originally pitched it to another smaller organization and they entertained it kind of for a hot second, but then they said, we just don't understand this. It doesn't make sense for us. And my, my good friend, uh, Tim Nelson, who I grew up with said, you got two choices, start your own nonprofit or find the biggest, best one out there doing this work. And I actually started down both roads. I, I got all the paperwork started to start a 501c3 nonprofit organization. But then I, I literally Googled child sponsorship, found World Vision, and by the grace of God, talked my way to pitch this idea to them. And I remember coming home from that first meeting, and I clearly remember Danny and I standing in our kitchen, and I was telling her, I'm supposed to do this, even if it means quitting my job. I know I'm supposed to do this. As we were talking, you know, she's going, but I thought we were going to wait a couple of years. Aren't we going to finish school first? And yeah, I want to do this. I want to move to Chicago. We're going to start this thing. But this is a few years from now, right? And I just was saying, no, I think God's telling us to do it now. And we just stood in the kitchen. I remember it so clearly crying and just kind of committing that we're scared out of our mind. But if this is what we're supposed to do, this is what we're supposed to do. Um, it, and it, it meant pretty huge sacrifices because I was one semester ahead of Danny for finishing grad school. So it meant I would move to Chicago without her and she would, we would sell our house and she moved into student um, housing. Grad student housing, yeah. A dingy student apartment that we rented for one semester. Furnished. Furnished, gross. So gross. Like, like so eight gross. college guys had been living in it before her. And, and we didn't know. World Vision didn't offer me a job. They offered me a trial run for nine months where I committed to raising my own salary. You know, that contract, we were like, we're going to move for a nine-month contract that you're raising your own salary for? And I remember, I, would, I remember after that, we thought we'd see each other a few times a week. We ended up going sometimes a couple weeks without seeing each other. And that was a very hard time and a big sacrifice for Danny to make for Team World Vision to start. And when she moved up that April, I could not have been happier. <laughs> Quite a story. 20 years of marriage, 15 years of a ministry. Danny, thank you for not laughing him out of the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, plenty of people did, LDR. Plenty of people did. Michael, any uh, 
any last encouragement for our runners? Well, a lot of folks listening to this, this might be their first group run, their first long run. And then our Chicago folks or Twin Cities folks, they're deeper into their training. So any last encouragement for them as they're out on the path? Yeah, one, I would say just thank you so much uh, for, for saying yes, whether it's your first time saying yes and you're stepping through fear or you've been at it for 10 or 15 years with Team World Vision. Thank you for moving your feet on behalf of the most vulnerable kids in the world. Don't be surprised by discouragement or failure. You know, getting, getting your shoes laced up and getting out to the street is the hardest part. Just getting going and keeping, you know, to keep doing that. And then just in the midst of all this uncertainty with COVID-19 and all this stuff, two things I know are good for the human soul. One is exercise and fresh air, getting outside and exercising is good for your spirit right now. It's good for your, um, good for your psyche. Everything about you will benefit from exercise. And the other is service to others. Sir, God built us to help other people. And so what better way to do that in the midst of all this uncertainty in the world than to move your feet on behalf of some of the most vulnerable children in the world. It is good for you to be doing this as it's good for the children and communities we serve. So thank you so much. And just so grateful for each person that says yes to running with us. Uh, Danny, what sort of tips or tricks do you have for any of our runners while they're moving their feet right now? What would you tell them? These newbies or even the veterans that have been around that might just be tired. What would you tell them? Um, for the veterans, especially when you're out there and it's a, you know, you have to get, at 20 mile or in and it's going 90 something degrees um at high noon um remember why you're doing it remember that on the other side of the globe are families and kids that don't have access to what we have access to and to you know keep keep that in mind um you're you're doing this so that the world knows, so that the marathon community knows, so that your family knows, so that your friends know that there are folks that need, need our help. And you recognize that it's a huge sacrifice, but if you wear that on your shoulders, um, it'll help, help you get through. One thing that I'm, I'm learning and that it can parallel to, to marathons, you're gonna fail but you look at failure as an acronym as the first attempt in learning and that look at it as your as as part of your success story you know we don't talk about failure because it doesn't look good we don't see you know you see people on instagram with their marathon uh medal and how excited you know they are to get it but they never post pictures of them walking they never post pictures of you know those ingrown toenails. They never post pictures of their IT band <laughs> issues, but that's all real. And that's all part of the journey. And it's okay to fail. Just keep moving. Just keep going. Team, there will be ups and downs this season, but we will Twende, Mambale, Pomocha. We will go farther together. No matter what shifts each one of our races might have to make, 
our mission in our race experience remains. There will be cowbells, there will be confetti, and there will be clean water. We don't run for flashbulbs and finish lines. We move our feet so that children can drop jerry cans and tow their own start lines of their own races in life. Let's twinde, membale, pomocha. You've got this. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. See you next week.